Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Christy Scallon podcast. This week, I speak to Dr. Martin Toms, who is an academic expert in youth sport, talent development and early diversification. In this episode, we talk about the need for an holistic approach to youth sport, how parents can best support their child in developing a passion for physical activity. We also discuss the current climate surrounding youth sports clubs, community integration and how these factors can be used as a vehicle for social change. I hope you find this episode interesting and informative. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to press that subscribe button. Enjoy the episode. Martin Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Christine. Much appreciated. Yeah, really happy to be here. Uh, my first question is, how did you get interested in coaching? <laughs> well, well, what a great question that is to start off with. Um <laughs> I think looking back, I guess probably one of the key things was um, inspirational coaches that I had as a uh, when I was a kid when I was playing, so playing cricket and football and rugby. Um, actually, being really lucky to have a couple of guys who were really inspiring, who made me not just improve as a player, but actually think about it a little bit more. And I think there's an element, probably as there is with all of us who were coaches, of wanting to give back. Um, and I think that's a, uh, I think that's a really, really key thing. So um, I suppose my real interest in coaching and sort of young person development and everything else literally came from my experiences with them, then studying and doing a bit of coaching and suddenly find it all sort of clicks together, really. What do you think the, the most important qualities of a, of a good coach is then? If you've studied it and obviously you've, you've, you've practised it, what do you think the good qualities are? In some uh, there was, there's some, yeah, there's some really interesting research out there that, that's been done historically looking at what people look for in a coach. Personally, I would say it's going to probably be sort of an element of empathy um, as well as the ability to, to enthuse, I guess. Uh, there are lots of really good coaches out there um, who... I'm sort of going to go and talk about the old four by four matrix and everything else as we go, um, who were really good with particular age groups. Uh, and they seem to click. Now, um, I guess that that that's quite interesting. Coming from an education background, we all, those of us who've been in education, we we get on better with particular age groups. I've no idea why. Um, but it it just seems to work. So actually. Um, I think one of the key things is finding the age group that you work best with. So just as an aside, there was I had a student a while ago whose dad was a coach at one of the uh, one of the academies at a junior at a championship club. Um, and I think he coached something like the under 15s and he was really successful. He was so successful they promoted him to the under 80s. Um, and it all went horribly wrong because his rapport was with that particular age group. Um, so I think there are some really interesting dynamics that we need to understand a bit more of when it comes to that. It's interesting because, again, speaking to students and, pe and speaking to young coaches, they think of the journey of, of kind of starting at maybe under nines and adolescent age groups and then all the way up to, to maybe elite level. Do you, think that do you think there's a common point where we need to be specialising in, in certain ages and, and kind of focus on that a little bit more? Absolutely. So, so the late Pat Duffy at Sports Coach, Sports Coach UK, God, when we're talking 15 years ago or so now, he came up with this idea of a four by four matrix. 
So you could become effectively a, a level three, level four coach, but coaching juniors. Because as you say, we all have that that view. Well, a lot of people have that view where you do your level one, you, you coach the juniors, do your level two, you uh, you sort of coach with a slightly better level. You get to level four and you're coaching the really, almost the, um, uh, the, the really good uh, players, where actually you can have a really good level four coach who works with the kids. Um, it's a really interesting thing. Unfortunately, it fell down, but I, I really hope they re re investigate it as an option because there are some absolutely brilliant kids coaches out there but they often suffer from well you're a kids coach and i'm an academy coach and therefore i'm better than you uh, and that's not always the case at all how do we change that perception then if if, if we have to kind of consider that there there was a really good piece uh, of work done uh, over in belgium around i think it was gymnastics coaching where the the author said um if you are a sort of a kids coach you might have high moral status but with everybody else you have low social status because you're coaching kids okay so there is quite a bit of a mindset to do but i think the more we can get governing bodies to explore this and i know football does it quite well uh with all the um uh, the additional courses and things you can do around uh sort of coaching juniors you can become a little bit of a specialist as a junior coach. In terms of maybe the challenges then, in terms of, in terms of coaching as a discipline, what things have you come across and maybe in your research when you practice that has been the biggest challenge? For um, a lot of it, um, I think, especially now, is things like time because of the current economic climate. Okay. Um, and not just that, I guess, the ability to to be able to pay for doing coaching awards at the cost of some coaching awards, where as soon as you get up to level two, uh, can become quite prohibitive. And the amount of time you have to do also changes. So we're in a in a bit of a sticky situation at the moment. Um, practically, I think as well, one of the difficulties is actually finding places to coach sometimes. Right. Um, depending what you're what you're trying to do. You mentioned time as well. Would you consider maybe reflective practice being an issue there within that? in terms of people reflecting back on their, their sessions yeah. and, and, and kind of breaking down and dissecting their ability to perform? No, no, I think, that, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think we're, we're all, we've all suddenly become quite time poor for some reason. So the ability to do that becomes an issue. So the, the tick box, if you like, of doing a coaching award, uh, certainly level one and everything else, which, which obviously is an important thing because of volume of numbers, but like you say, we do need to be able to find time to be able to do that reflective stuff um, and consider our coaching an awful lot more. Just speaking to coaches, there's this obsession around technical and tactical practice. But from your background and kind of focusing around that social cycle area, is there anything you, you know, we've got to consider in terms of maybe talent development within those areas to support um, adolescents or maybe uh, adults around uh practice? Yeah, I think a huge amount. My, my my, I guess my new mantra is always about culture and context. Um, so, oh, when, when we, one of the colleagues, what twelve years ago, uh, did the sports coach participant development review, we looked at this idea about biopsychosocial, um, and how that has an impact on on participant development. But what I'm beginning to think of a lot more now is the biopsycho works within the social context. So if you're doing things in a different environment in a different country, 
in a different culture, um, there are a lot of different things you need to take into account. Um, and certainly, I think in this country, we need to think a little bit more about the sort of the developmental opportunities kids have had, maybe a little bit more about their their social background, their family background, the peers and everything else, just to get a little bit more of a better understanding of them as as individuals, as people and not just as physical bodies. The coach the person rather than the... Absolutely. Oh, 100%. Person. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, coach the person, not the sport. Yeah. Um, and I think that that becomes crucial if we want to retain young people playing sport for much longer. Yeah. How, how do we integrate that then? If, if that's the thing that we need to maybe do as, as practitioners and coaches, then how is that integrated within our <laughs> ability to perform effectively? Certainly within coaching awards, it's a challenge because how do you teach it? Yeah. Uh, certainly being, I guess, empathy is a key thing. Being aware maybe of your own journey as a young player, the importance other people had on you and just thinking about that a little bit more. I know there's there's an awful lot and we, we've all done it where you, yeah, you're, you're time poor, you turn up to your coaching session, you do your coaching session, do all the technical, tactical stuff and you leave. But maybe we just need to reflect a little bit more. Actually, maybe we need to get to know these people a bit more. Maybe you need to understand them. Um, in order to better support them but that becomes difficult because of the role of coaches i suppose um from 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 what you said is is trying to reframe coaching in a manner that kind of sees it as a as a bit of a integral part of someone's career pathway or journey and, and kind of just ensuring that it's there's a lot more layers to turning up to a coaching session and just playing and winning and trying to achieve external or uh, extrinsic rewards there's there's a lot more layers to it is that is that what you're kind of trying to emphasize yeah, yeah. i think so i think particularly with sort of i'm going to say the under 16 age group um which are the really key ones to try and maintain their participation so beginning to understand those those kids um is yeah is one of those key key things so uh, I know just before the podcast started, we talked a little bit about sort of um, um, the GAA in over in Ireland mm-hmm. and actually that community-based level sport where you may know your coach or you, your coach may know you from within the community actually helps an awful lot with that cohesion and that participation. There's somebody, somebody who knows something about you and, and can support you um, is a much stronger prospect. So, for example, I, I was working with a, a a grassroots team and what they managed to do, this was a few years ago, they managed to sort of buddy up some of the adult players with some of the juniors. Right. Such that the adults knew something about the juniors, even if it was only their name and, and where they came from and what they liked doing. And actually it, it enabled them to have discussions and, and the kids were thinking, wow, I've got a role model somebody who actually cares about me and somebody who knows something about me. So something almost as simple as that would be ideal. Really interesting to, to kind of think about coaching in that manner. And you mentioned, obviously, the GAA. I, I was part of that community in Birmingham and I do see the, the benefits of um, community integration within coaching practices and how that can be effectful, you know, away from the sport. And it's like a lifelong 
journey really a lifelong skill that's kind of transferable in, into other areas yeah. absolutely um, one of one of my big fears and I, and I will say this now at the moment with um, the economic climate we're in are the number of small community clubs who are disappearing because of the cost of everything, some are amalgamating, some are just going completely. Um, and so we've got a sort of what we're ending up with in, in some cases are clubs with more kids, taking more kids from different places who don't have that community feel anymore. So the clubs are doing doing right by doing as much coaching as they can do, but we're losing that real grassroots family feel that a lot of GAA clubs and other places actually had. Um, and we need to think of a way of trying to trying to instill that back again. The benefits of playing multiple sports. I know you've you've researched into this area around early specialization. Um, why should that be emphasized in terms of youth development? I mean, I mean there is a plethora, there is a lot of research that's been done on this, not just in the UK, but but certainly abroad. Um, I mean, the, the, the key thing about sampling a range of sports is avoiding burnout, avoiding dropout, avoiding um, injury. So actually creating a more holistic indi sporting individual. Um, and I guess as well, one of the other things that comes with it is this idea about a less a lower risk approach to identifying talent. So if you're um playing a number of uh, of what we might call related sports um where you suddenly find you're actually better at one than another then you're not risking anything because you're doing a number you're not putting all your eggs in one basket by just focusing on one sport um, i'll give you a brief example so one of my uh, master's students who's doing some work uh, with elite boxers and and, and judokas in india so then they're national level athletes. Um, one of his re most recent findings is some of the best boxers actually play table tennis as kids. Wow. And you start thinking, well, hang on a second, if you think about reactions, arm, hand, wrist movement, then there is, with all of these sampling activities, if you like, opportunity for unintentional or accidental talent transfer. So you start beginning to think about some of those things. You can start beginning to think, oh, okay, uh, when we're talking about doing these sampling activities and, and these, these multi-sports, can we do it in such a way that it will build up skills that might help another sport? Um, so, for example, the, the sport I, I, I guess I've done the most work in at the moment is golf. Uh, so we know what sports you should be playing if you want to become an elite golfer as a kid so there is a there is a diet might be the best phrase there is a a number of activities that quite clearly allow biomechanical physiological muscle memory whatever you want to call it skill transfer um that, that are really really helpful so um we can start building those in across academy level sports then that's brilliant so do you feel like that that has to kind of be integrated into a curriculum or some form of program to, to kind of benefit that transferability into the oh absolutely absolutely i mean i think it's well yes whilst you might do for example if you take a football academy what you whilst you might do your football a football academy you may be given homework to go and learn to do other skills 
Uh, for example, one of the really good skills that, that footballers often need is, is, is obviously peripheral vision. One of the ways of gaining that is actually by learning to juggle. Right. Hand-eye coordination and kicking a football. So all of these little things that we can do that are useful, that potentially you could build into, I don't know, a strategic level um, multi-sport activity camp, but that has a focus on a particular sport. So how do we measure that? How do we see the impactfulness of of, of different sports? It, it, it's really difficult. I mean, what, one of the things, again, that the evidence suggests is that if, well, if you specialise early, um, then you are more likely to get injured than everything else. So we know that that's not a good thing, uh, specialising. Uh, in the UK, it tends to be sort of, if you specialise from the age of 12, uh, then your chances of making it as an elite performer plummet. Okay. Um, which means that if you do multiple sports, I guess not only does it give you more opportunity to play uh, one sport at an elite level at some points, but it also allows you to avoid injury, avoid um, burnout, dropout, all of these sorts of other risky factors that are out there for us. So do, do you think maybe some sports, for example, football, kind of recruit too early then in terms of the age group? And that can actually be impactful in terms of longevity. Yes. Uh, I hate to say it, and I know it won't be popular, but if you if you look at some of the stuff that's out there, you look at the, the even uh, talk to people like Nick Levitt, who's got a lot of experience um, in football. Um, we're all of the agreement that what we should be doing is, yes, kids should play football from a young age. And they should be engaged in loads of other activities. But what we need to think about more carefully is what age they then focus solely on football. Okay. And the later we can leave it, the better. And there are lots of examples if you go into Europe about how they do this. So you go to Bayern Munich, FC Barcelona, you go and look at all of these big sports clubs that create fantastic players. They're actually multi-sport clubs. And they don't just do football; they do loads of other activities as well. What What are your thoughts on ten thousand hours? <laughs> like anything else that has a number to it, it's a handy number. There is no evidence for it whatsoever. Really? Uh, yeah. Again, looking at the well, we can do for, go for ten thousand hours. There's no guarantee we're ever going to make it as an elite performer. So not only does it not guarantee you becoming a late performer, um, but um, it can be done in less than 10,000 hours. It can take longer. Uh, one of the issues is that uh, the dear old, the late Anders Ericsson, who came up with the theory in the first place, it was all based around music. And music is a closed skill activity. Um, unfortunately, then the media got a hold of it and took it up. Um, and it became all about sport as well, about becoming an elite performer. Yeah. But his point was, this is all about doing a, practicing a closed skill. So going back to my analogy, if you if you juggle for 10,000 hours, you're going to be a damn good juggler because it's a closed, it's closed skill activity. But if you try and do a close, try and do an activity that involves other people, then that makes it even more difficult so it's not as if the pianists they did 
had to run around and chase the piano whilst trying to do their 10,000 hours and play play some music on it. So the 10,000 hour thing is a, is a myth. Um, unfortunately, it's problematic. And unfortunately, there are some footballing organisations who jumped on the bandwagon and said 10,000 touches. Uh, but there is no evidence whatsoever for 10,000 hours. A little bit like doing 10,000 steps or eating your seven a day. Uh, the evidence for all of those things are pretty sketchy. So if there's no evidence of that, and if we're being critical, which we are, then how do we develop a positive learning environment? How do we develop elite athletes or elite groups? Again, we, we, we have to do it individually. Everybody's different. Everybody comes in with a different level of skills. So if you imagine if you had... Uh, had a football if you had a young footballer who'd never really played very much the level of need that they would have is going to be completely different to somebody who played a lot of related sports and activities um i'll, I'll take the example of jack butland okay. great goalkeeper until he got injured great goalkeeper um what he got from playing rugby that helped him become a goalkeeper must be enormous all of those skills that you've got of running towards people and diving at them. Brilliant. And ball handling. Fantastic. Mm. So you've got those related sports. So it's that skill transfer that becomes really, really important. Mm. So we've, this goes back then to understanding that individual and what their individual needs might be. Yeah. Um, so certainly people who've done some work on the 10,000 hour scenario um, have found that you can become an elite performer in less than that. Um, one slight um, change as well, and if you can find anything on this or anybody listening can find anything on, on this, it'll be really good. So maybe a dozen years ago or so, uh, the BBC did a documentary um, uh, called Bobsleigh Challenge. Um, and on that documentary, they got former elite athletes. So they had a sprinter, I can't remember who it was now, uh, they had a decathlete um, and they had a couple of rugby players. Uh, they stuck him in a bobsleigh, gave him, gave him 10 days of training, stuck him in a bobsleigh. And those guys beat the Team GB bobsleigh team in trials. So notionally, they, they did two practice runs um, as well as all these 10 days training. So notionally, they blew that 10,000 hours out of the water but what they had already were a load of skills from their existing sports that they could transfer across so understanding these individuals and what their backgrounds and everything else becomes really really important i, th I think again just just on reflection of what we've talked about especially adolescence and that growth and that journey and that, that longevity in performance sport um one thing that I've come across with with previous uh, guests is they talk about identity and the minute kind of their identity is taken away from them, it impacts their their mental health and their their well-being. Have you come across anything around that area in terms of how um, factors such as burnout or, or other things can kind of impact one's in identity? Yeah, no, enormously. I mean, um, certainly if you look at uh, the, 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 the issue, again, in football, of deselection. Um, so you've got kids who have created a huge amount of social, cultural and physical capital 
not just in the club, but with their friends and their school and everything else, who are suddenly released from the academy. And they've got to go back and tell their mates that they weren't good enough to stay in. Then that is going to have a massive impact on their uh, on their mental health and their mental well-being. Um, so we need to get a really good understanding and a much better understanding and support network uh, for what's going on. Um, as an aside, I have, I have a PhD student who's been uh, looking at this in, in top level elite golf uh, with, with a lot of household names in it. Uh, and some of the big, big issues that come out of it is uh, when you suddenly start going backwards in your career how you reinvent yourself if you can reinvent yourself um and that's with adults who've got a lot of experience and probably a lot of money behind them uh so for kids it becomes a real real concern about how we can support them moving forwards uh, and maybe that is then this idea that if you've got kids doing a lot of different sporting activities who've got a lot of things they can go back into if they fell at one thing they can do go and do something else then that becomes less of an issue. Yeah. Um, I guess it's a bit like being in school and you're only studying one subject and suddenly finding actually not allowed to study it anymore. That that healthy diet of activities, I think, becomes really, really important. Do you feel like there's limited knowledge or a limited awareness around that exit strategies and, and kind of player care or groups yeah. of, of care within... Yeah, performance or even maybe grassroots performance. Yeah, massively. Um, and I think there's the even in uh, in grassroots clubs, if you like, where um, somebody doesn't get picked one week or gets left out or dropped or whatever else. Um, the coach won't be thinking about that because they're thinking about the team that are playing. But we almost do need to then think about, OK, what can we do to support that person? That person might become. I, the next David Beckham, but they're just a late developer. And I'm not suggesting that we need coaches to also be social workers or anything like that, that at all. But we just need that ability to reflect and think about if that was us at, at that age, what would we have felt like? You kind of alluded to it, alluded to the point um, during the course of our conversation around support mechanisms and, and player care and, and, and help for, for individuals, especially around mental health. How should coaches maybe support mental health and in their practice then? How should they consider that? Is, is there anything that you've you've researched and looked at in terms of mechanisms or strategies to, to kind of ensure that that is in place? It's a really difficult way. What I would suggest is actually any coach goes to uh, gets involved in any of the sort of Sports Coach UK mental health awareness things with uh, and coaching, uh, coaching kids elements, anything that's out there that can, can help. We don't have any formal qualifications as yet, but I'm sure they won't be far off. Um, and, and certainly sort of be, being aware of um, yeah, kids' mental health and even child protection to some extent, because that's ultimately what we're talking about. Um, it is a really, really important thing. So the, the, yeah, the mental health of kids and the mental health of coaches is going to become a really important area for us to look at. Do you think because of the nature of, of coaching and it can be quite competitive, people are kind of fearful of opening up about their weaknesses and, and kind of talking about what they need to improve on? I know you see that a lot yeah. within football. There's a, there's, a, there's a kind of an ego element to it as well. How, how do we drop that? How do we kind of 
ensure that we can learn. I mean, th that that a lot is going to be culture change. I mean, I would like to see that if we'd had the four by four matrix, then I think you would you'd have found um, a lot more understanding of each other and understanding of what's going on across whoever's coaching at what level. Uh, I think that would have been really good. So there are people out there who have become, if you like, expert children's coaches. Um, and they've got their name that way. And maybe they're making quite a lot of money from doing those sorts of things because they've got the skill set for it. Um, and, and I think that's really positive. But being able to support them and being able to support the the other coaches around them and 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 try and break down some of these ego barriers, I think is, is quite a challenge. It's, again, it's a really interesting point, thinking about the hyper-masculinity of, 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 of cultural um, sports, you know, rugby, maybe football, um, and kind of breaking those barriers down. It seems to be a consistent challenge for people to open up about mental health and show some form of um, vulnerability yeah. to kind of enable to them to, to improve. It's, it's strange how then things work out and, and, and how those cultural factors impact yeah sport or performance and I, I do wonder at the grassroots level how much those go that goes back to what we were saying earlier about this sort of this local community slash family where the social support networks in your local club again going back to GAA and how that would work are much closer so it's easier to open up mm -hmm. uh, and talk to people than it is if you're turning up for a couple of sessions a week um and then doing is doing a couple of hours and then leaving again what about parents and Martin? Well, we 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 kind of know that we need to maybe play a range of different sports and specialise later on in our development. We need to consider. You, we mentioned culture. Then, how do we educate parents? Because I'm sure that parent has a massive factor on the the longevity or the, the journey of, of of a young person or a young adult. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure we have to educate them to yeah to, to kind of. I mean, they 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 are central to to all of this, I guess, because. They're the ones who ultimately, certainly as, as kids are, are growing and developing, um, pay for them, they transport them, they encourage them and they engage with them. So we do need to try and get that message out about, uh, yeah, not trying to live vicariously through their children uh, and more often than not giving those kids a wide range of experiences. Yeah. Um, it, it's a challenge because probably it's more convenient just to do one sport um, and one sport just takes maybe one night a week where doing three or four might take three or four nights a week yeah. um, so there are practical things that we also need to be aware of uh, and I, again I wonder if this sort of then plays into the hands of a lot of the sports clubs in Europe are multi-sport clubs you go to one place and you can do loads of activities in this country, whilst our strength is often we have a single sport club that's really good, it's also our Achilles heel. Because if you want to play more than one sport, as, as we did, uh, I'm sure as kids, then we'd have to go to three or four different locations in order to do it. Um, and that means that there's a cost, there's a time that then makes these parents think, oh, maybe we'll just focus on one or two. So as well as the notional 10,000 hours, if I can get my kid to do 10,000 hours by the time that they're 10, they'll be playing for England. Um, as well as this convenience thing, then I think we've got a broader 
cultural shift that's going on. There is also some evidence, um, particularly I think it's actually in Ireland, that things like triathlon are becoming more um, more child friendly than club sport, only because a parent can do the activity with a child in triathlon, running, cycling uh, and swimming, but they can't be on the pitch with them if they're doing that. So we've almost got that little bit of a shift of of activities, if you like. I, I suppose it's, I think the key word is accessibility to those different sports. That can be a challenge, especially, you know, you, you think of society and the issues that we see at the moment with cost of living, et cetera. I, yeah. I suppose that's even more of a challenge now. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and I think, uh, and, and Joe Baker and colleagues over in um, Canada made this point really well, actually, where they were pointing out that it's fine to say, go and do a load of activities, but they might not be accessible and they may not be affordable. So we need to really think about what we can do to support that. And maybe that's part of our education system as well. Can schools offer a lot more activities uh, for these kids to go off and do multiple activities rather than focus on one? Or, or is it just this perception that they want to be really good at just doing one and therefore you're just going to only do one and you start risking stuff? Uh, last question, Martin. Um, what I tend to do with my guests is get them to maybe reflect back and, and look back on their, their journey. But what I'm going to do with you is I'm going to get you to think in the future because I think okay. uh, you're a pioneer in this, this research around coaching and I think you're very forward thinking in terms of how coaching should be should be done. Um, where do you see the future of coaching and what does it what would it look like maybe the time you kind of come to the end of your academic journey and, and kind of put your feet up <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in a nice way i hope that never happens but that's another story um <laughs> i i really hope that what we get to um in coaching a little bit like education is a better understanding of of, of how we as individuals may want to specialize in coaching a particular age group and a particular ability group because what I think we need to do is utilize our skills. Now, anybody listening and you yourself, and I know people who are brilliant coaches in a particular age group, for some reason, they just it just clicks. Yeah. Um, in the same way that anybody who's a teacher will go into a particular teaching age because there is something that just clicks for them. So what I would really like to see and, and hope will, will happen will be some kind of differentiation as we develop um, our, our coaching programmes and everything else that's on there around age groups within sports and maybe across sports about age groups um, and also ability levels. That's really and I think that would be really good. So we do have people who become um, elite coaches for the under nines, under nine starters or however we want to talk it talk about it so really revisit that four by four matrix that would be how i would really like to see it go and i'd like to see governing bodies really think about that a lot more because as we were saying earlier what we don't what i don't want to see are people doing level one level two level three level four thinking it's a linear journey on the type of person that you might coach 
and their ability level, but actually think about where they can make the biggest difference and where they can make the biggest retention level with the kids that they coach. Is that model in place anywhere else in the world? No. Not that I'm aware of, no. Not that I'm aware of. I think there are probably some countries, and I'm thinking probably about Australia and New Zealand, where they may have less of a status issue about who coaches and they actually do have um almost like elite junior coaches as if they not the coach I'll, I'll change that to uh, notionally level four junior coaches who who are excellent coaches all the knowledge everything else and they can inspire a nine-year-old a 10-year-old to then go on to go and join a, a, an expert or an uh, an elite whatever you want to call call them level four, under 12 coach. They've got the skills and it's not this thing about becoming a level one is the is the really beginners and the level four being the, the really good players. The danger I think we have with that as well is if you think about it, if we always put our level one coaches, our least experienced, our least qualified coaches with the most vulnerable age kids, then we've got a problem. I don't know about you, but if I was going to go and see a surgeon, I'd want to make sure I had the most qualified, most experienced surgeon and not their junior if I was going to have an operation. So why don't we think about that for kids and coaching? Really interesting, actually, to, to kind of just change the mindset and the thought process around that. Yeah, it's the NGBs. There are people in, in, in the NGBs who, who understand, who get it, but we've got to get that message through. And maybe it's organisations like Sports Coach UK, UK Sports, that can really help develop this sort of thing. Martin, thank you for your time today. Where, where can we where can we find you? Are you on social media? Uh, yeah, you, you can find me on Twitter um, at Dr. Martin Toms. Um, you can... Uh, you, you'll find me at University of Birmingham um, uh, sort of website and stuff. Um, and yeah, certainly uh, within the book, you'll see some uh, some stuff and comments. But yeah, more than happy to talk to anybody, ask questions or uh, get involved in anything to make a difference. Uh, I mean, ultimately, that's why, that's why I feel my role is. I just want to try and make a difference on what's going on out there. Um, either here or abroad or whatever it is. Um, anything that will help, anything that will create uh, either an Olympic performer or just somebody who becomes the next coach or club administrator or whatever. That's what the aim is. This is about legacy. It's not about anything else. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thank you very much for your time as well, Christine.